Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast for film fans by film fans. Every episode, we look at films old and new to choose what should be preserved for all time in our movie vault. With lively topics, big questions, and crazy challenges to entertain us and our guests, we always look to have fun by giving you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching, even if there are some duds along the way. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a preview of what to expect in today's episode. But you could just win the lottery every day. Yeah, but you win the lottery at like, what, eight o'clock at night? That, mm. gi- that gives you a couple of hours to get the money, spend sure. the money in any significant way before you then fall asleep and wake back up. Hell of a night. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'd, I'd like to change mine. After, th- after listening to Dave's, I feel like mine is a bit... Hmm, a million dollars or M&M's. <laughs> right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Are you not Hello and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that gives you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching. I am your host, David Osger, coming to you on this very good Friday. But unfortunately, I can't find my co-host. I've I've come into some form of cave where I've been told that he is. There's some kind of tomb here, which like the rock is missing. I, I, I don't know where he is. Craig, where are you? Behind you. Craig is a... Uh, Craig has risen again. Is this Sunday yet, Craig? I mean, this is this is a weird stance for you to take that I'm Jesus. Is is this literally a hair comment? You do kind of look like Jesus at the moment. I but... don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if if Jesus had the stomach that I do, then I have no idea if he was actually giving out to the five thousand just the loaves and fishes or just scoffing at himself. <laughs> Uh, but we are also joined by our very own Easter Bunny, bringing us some Easter eggs on this episode, is our good friend and collaborator, Stephen Jones. Hello, Steve. Hello. I, I thought you were going to introduce me as Judas, so I was quite happy. <laughs> that was an option. Um, we're waiting for you to do something wrong for that. Uh, <laughs> at the moment, you're in our good books. I did have to laugh the other day when you sent a video message so spun the chair pretended to be dr evil stroking an invisible cat and went to the effort of throwing away the invisible cat <laughs> I, I, do, I would like to say this is all true this is what <laughs> I do. so yeah that invisible cat is fine i'm feeding it invisible cat food and it's, it's barely alive it's, it's, it's all right okay I'm, I'm gonna bite you why did you do any of this <laughs> Well, I, I forgot the reason, to be honest. It's just Steve. It, it, he doesn't need a reason for any of it, to be honest. To be fair, you should hear the Tupperware podcast that he sent me. There's no reason for that either. <laughs> but apart from Tupperware, Steve, uh, we brought you on today as obviously niche films are often your specialty, as we've learned in the past. You've talked about bizarre Disney sports movies. You've talked about Chicken Little, you know, like one of the least beloved Disney films, which you came on to sort of defend and make a ride about. And also you've been going back through our old episodes as a good way to have some thing to listen to when you're doing work, when we're all locked down and working from home more. So we thought this would be a good opportunity for you to come on to this episode, which we'll get on to specifically what it's about today. Um, but yeah, what what made you have that idea of sort of writing down films from what we put into the movie vault and that you hear us discuss how, you know, what, what brought you to that sort of decision? Yeah. So, you know, as you know, you mentioned about my speciality for niche films. I just have really started to 
I really wanted to start watching the classics of lately. And I just thought this would be the perfect way to go through the Well Good Movies podcast and, and just list the films that have been mentioned and, and make a real good effort to watch them. And I feel as though, you know, there's some great films in the vault and I've got my list ready and it keeps growing with each podcast I listen to. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to making my way through that list and hopefully gaining some knowledge in the world of film at the same time. Yeah, well, we uh, love to hear it. Like I said, it's uh, the kind of stuff that, you know, we uh, hope to hear from our listeners and our guests sort of exploring these movies as well as maybe reminiscing about them and that kind of stuff as well. Uh, but it also links into what we're talking about today as in films that we've never seen before or have a certain status or expectation. Uh, so that also links in nicely to a project uh, that we're working on for Fresh Take as well. So it's worth mentioning at the top here because it relates so much to the topics and reason that we wanted to do this episode today. So again, Steve, tell us all about it. Me and films, we have an interesting relationship. We always have. I've never really gone for the main blockbusters or, you know, the ones that everyone says, this is a five-star film, you have to watch it. When I'm told that I have to watch something, I tend to not watch it. So I've always gone down the niche route of watching weird films and wacky ones and stuff that people are like, did you really watch that? And I'm like, yes, I did. Even if it has got a two-star review, I will watch it. But I think it's come to a time in my life now where I feel like I need to start ticking off these blockbusters and, and really making an effort to watch them. So me and Dave, we've created a new series called Never Seen, and it's going to be over on Fresh Take Hub. And basically what it is, is it's, it's taking me through these films. It's going to be everything from classic Disney films to classic horror movies to everything you could think of in that bracket when you think about some of the best films in the market. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to starting it with you, man. I think it's going to be a really good project. And in the process, I'm going to learn a lot more about myself and a lot more about these classic films. And I think people at home will be experiencing the same sort of like gasping and <laughs> frustration or, you know, joy when uh, when Steve discovers these. Because it's some pretty big films. You know, we're, we're talking the likes of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, you know, Lord of the Rings, Lion King, you know, that was the one that triggered it all off. So there's some pretty big films that uh, Steve has uh, never seen. I will, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Stephen. Some of the films you've mentioned, I haven't seen. I'm not going to say which ones, mm. uh, because I feel like that way people can decide whether or not they're going to make the attempt to hate me or not for it. But no, I completely understand. At the end of the day, I think films are often the sort of thing that you need to need to be sort of cultured into watching especially with like the the big blockbuster, uh, blockbuster films you often need like specific group mentality to often get into them to like continue the desire so if you don't get that at a certain point i complete i completely understand right i think because like for for me an example would be the first star wars film i ever saw in full was episode three because a friend convinced me to go to the cinema with them and then after seeing that i went and watched all of the other films I think uh, I think that is the best approach sometimes, though, is to have a reason to watch those films as well. Like, oh, the new... I remember, like, with Indiana Jones, I watched all of them because Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was coming out and that kind of... Rather than just some people who say, like, yeah, I've seen that. And you're like, well, you know, uh, what did you think? Oh, I just sort of chucked it on when it was on in the background or I just saw it on TV one day, you know. So can you really say that you invested in it or did, did you sort of, like, specifically say, I'm going to watch this without any expectations... So that can be a big part of it as well, is expectations, uh, which we'll also be talking about today. So uh, should we get on to what today's episode is all about, guys? Hell yeah. We should, we should. On this week's episode of Well Good Movies, we wanted to delve into some of the films we preserved in our movie vault. 
whether that means revisiting an old favorite or challenging ourselves to watch a film we've never seen before, each one of us wanted to see if these movies deserve their place in the vault and meet our expectations. Also, as it's Easter, we decided to talk about Easter eggs, but not the chocolate kind. No, me and Craig were challenged by Steve to pick our favorite hidden Easter eggs in films before taking a visit to Steve's Egg Emporium. So, what are some of my favorite Easter eggs? The first one that I have uh, popped down is actually in an, a film that I just mentioned uh, was when the Ark of the Covenant shows up in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the Indiana Jones film, the fourth one, which again, I know is like the least popular film and gets a lot of hate towards it. But it's a very gimmicky Easter egg. It's very obvious. It's kind of like an obvious cameo of that prop. Uh, but I just enjoyed that entire element of the film. When I recently rewatched Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's fun to end that film with that massive warehouse with all the boxes and all that kind of stuff of all these artifacts. And you always think like, ooh, I wonder what else is in there. So I always thought it was fun for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull to go, hey, let's go to that warehouse. Let's go to get another artifact from here. So the fact that they're in that place you just have to show uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And the way they do it, again, it's not in some kind of gimmicky, stupid way. It's just that they're driving off. You see a box open and you see the Covenant is just there and it's shining. And they have like a little bit of music to be like, you know, so I thought it was just a, a subtle one. It was nice. It wasn't like too niche for people to understand. I think pretty much anybody who's watching Indiana Jones could watch it and go, oh, yeah, that's fun. And another fun time that that's appeared uh, it's also turned up in other lucasfilm uh, george lucas projects uh, it showed up in an episode of clone wars actually star wars the clone wars uh, i think when cad bane is uh looking for his uh, new outfit when he breaks out of prison with uh, obi-wan and uh that weird alien guy i can't remember the name of him now and uh, he's looking for a new hat and i think he tries on uh indy's hat at one point uh, but also the ark the covenant is in the background as well which is a uh, it's quite a fun one. Uh, and my second one is in Spider-Man 2 uh, when they name drop Doctor Strange. And the reason that is one of my favorites now is just because of like the entire weird meaning that that, came, uh, that Easter egg has brought on is when J. Jonah Jameson and one of his editors or writers is coming up with an idea for a headline for Doc Ock. He's like, we need a name for this guy. And he's like, science squid. And then he says like, uh, Doctor Strange. And he's like, that's good, but it's taken. And so it's so weird now that years and years later, Sam Raimi is directing the next Doctor Strange film because he directed Spider-Man 2. And even that film referenced the idea that it's taken. It's not even that he said, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, well, let's have something more related to his arms or anything. It's it's as if um, Doctor Strange or the comics existed within that Raimi universe, which is quite fun. And I think Raimi was asked about this in an interview and he said, yeah, it." It's weird how life turns out. So I just like the entire narrative of that Easter egg that it was just put in there as a comic book reference, like, hey, here's a Marvel character. And then the fact that the director of that film is now actually making a Doctor Strange film all these years later is just a strange coincidence. And like Raimi said, it's just strange how fate fate turns out. So uh, yeah, that's my two. Craig, what, what's uh, some of your favorite Easter eggs? So I probably have two that I would go to. Uh, I think one of the probably more obvious ones are some of the Disney films where, especially if they're, say, the sort of 90s era, such as Aladdin or Hercules, 
they basically try and reference some of their older characters by basically just bringing them in in weird cameos. So I think the two that I can remember quite vividly are the genie basically transforming into like a, a variety of different characters in Aladdin. And at one point, he morphs into, I think he's either a cook or somebody related to the ocean. Uh, and he's basically has a crab, which is Sebastian the crab, and he's just basically flailing him about and just chewing him off. Although that pales in comparison to Hercules, where when he's posing in a lion's rug, that line that lion happens to just be the skin of Scar, which I uh, or like the fur of Scar, which I just love the image of just. Hey kids, you know that that awful awful lion you hated at the uh, you hated at the end of the Lion King. Well, we've turned him into a rug. <laughs> I think the other thing for me would probably be the inadvertent Easter egg that ended up basically spawning a trilogy. Uh, which is the idea of the Cornetto trilogy. So obviously you have uh, Shaun of the Dead, which was uh, directed and generally written by Edgar Wright. And the idea of that uh, film basically just being a zombie apocalypse happening to an incredibly ordinary guy. And you had them basically just, you know, eating a Cornetto at one point. Uh, and that basically be- that just was seen as like an ordinary thing. Uh, and then the next film he did, again, with very similar cast, you know, still having Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Another character also eating a cornetto. So the point to the point that people tried to basically thread this, uh, thread these films together so vividly, basically then spawning the world's end where everyone was basically just waiting for the cornetto to show up, and in what way it was going to, uh, in what way it was going to show up, and it showed up brilliantly at the end as just a wrapper flying in the wind of this apocalyptic world, which was just great, and also just the fact that the different uh, there are loads of theories about the different flavors or cornettos. Uh, basically representing different different genres of films. So it was a strawberry cornetto in the first one, basically representing the idea of horror and gore because it was a zombie film. Then the it was a whatever flavor blue cornetto is. Just like milk, just normal like chocolate. Yeah, Vanilla. normal milk chocolate for the uh, for the middle movie because it was like a sort of it was a mystery thriller action film. It's like the blue is like police lights and all that kind of stuff, I suppose. Yeah, and then finally, uh, green for World End because uh, science uh, science fiction sort of alien sort of abduction sort of lights uh, basically being that mint, which I just thought was a really uh, really cool touch. They went to the effort of making sure that all of uh, all of that could be done, and I thought that was a really cool Easter egg to include. And the fact that you can buy them as the Cornetto trilogy, like the DVD box sets are called the Cornetto trilogy. And that oh, and there's some fantastic bizarre. art where they try and really utilize the Cornetto theme as well, which I'm pretty sure the brand must be loving this absolute, absolute yeah. advertising bond that they've got. Yeah. The only thing I was always disappointed with is that in The World's End, they didn't try to link in green a bit more to the storyline. So where's like strawberry, red, blood zombies you know blue police all that kind of stuff i wish that in the world's end you know how the robots or aliens whatever you want to call them when their heads pop up they have like blue liquid i was like why didn't you just make that green and it could have tied in a bit more because i was like ah this that's a bit unfortunate for me it just seemed like there was a prime opportunity to use green with a liquid you know with a liquid pouring out of bodies like that but i don't know maybe it didn't work well for the cgi or something like that or it didn't didn't blend well if they were doing stuff on green screen I mean, for me, overall, I was generally disappointed in the comparative quality of the world's end in comparison to the other two. So oh. there's a lot going, a lot of that going around. Yeah, true. 
Uh, so, Steve, what, what have you got prepared in your uh, crazy, crazy world of Easter eggs? So, Dave, welcome to my Egg Emporium. And first up, we're going to be talking about Fight Club, also known as the famous Starbucks cup in every scene Easter egg. This is when director David Fincher claims that in every single scene of Fight Club, you shall see a Starbucks coffee cup. And now this is apparently a social commentary on the fact that everywhere you look in real life, you shall find a Starbucks coffee shop. Moving forward, we're going to be talking about The Departed, X Marks the Spot. The 2006 American crime film from Martin Scorsese is a favourite amongst film buffs. The New York Queens director opted to use an X to forebode that one of his characters was going to die. He was paying homage to Howard Hawke's original Scarface, which incorporated a bunch of X's to imply that death was imminent. Next up, we've got Sid the Bin Man in Toy Story 3. Do you remember in Toy Story 3 when the toys hide from the bin man? Well that is in fact Sid collecting the trash, and he is even sporting the same skull t-shirt that he wore in the very first film. And to finish up we've got a nice little easter egg from Catch Me If You Can. And now this is when Frank is arrested in the movie, one of the officers is the real life Frank Abengale. An excellent egg to finish up on. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that, Steve, for the crazy little uh, fun game to get us in the mood for uh, looking out for interesting facts and uh, fun Easter eggs and talking about some bizarre movies, uh, which we always appreciate you bringing on to the podcast. Uh, but now we're going to talk about some famous movies as we go into the movie vault, as we talk about films that we decided to pick out of the vault uh, by opening it up and choosing films we wanted to highlight or talk about, which might be ones that we've never seen before. So like we mentioned before with Steve, are these films that we haven't watched for a certain reason? Or are we going in with any certain expectations or ideas about what this film is about and what it's meant to represent? So what was it like going into this film, which has got such a big legacy uh, behind it, including the fact that it has been put into the movie vault? Uh, so we already know about it from that. Uh, so, you know, we've gone... Th- gone at this in a few different directions and yeah it'll be interesting today to talk about you know our experiences with these different films so uh first off i thought we would start with craig tell us about your movie that you decided to fetch out to the vault so i love comedy and like i, d- I don't think i get to watch enough like movie con- comedies anymore uh, so I was more than happy to basically go through the vault and see if there was one that stood out to me that I haven't watched. Uh, then I saw this film and I remembered the fact that I consistently rave about its stage musical adaptation uh, written by one of my favourite songwriter comedians. And I thought, well, this probably seems like the perfect time to actually get myself to to watch it and fully engage with it. Uh, so the film that I ended up watching, as, suggest- as suggested by uh, Daniel Cullinane, uh, for our what to watch, uh, what to watch at home uh, episode that we did, which is the last episode that David and I ever recorded in person with with our guests, was the film Groundhog Day. Groundhog time. A thousand people freezing their butts off, waiting to worship a rat. Weatherman Phil Connors is spending the day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Phil. Man, Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Bing! But Phil's about to find out 
He's not just stuck in Puxatawney. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck... In Groundhog Day. I'm reliving the same day over and over. Bill! Ned Ryerson. Bang! Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? At first, he was a little anxious. Bill! Where? Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. But now... We could do whatever we want. <laughs> He's discovering the possibilities. Don't you worry about cholesterol? Why? And living life mm. like there's Phil? no tomorrow. Phil Connors! Ned! Because... There isn't. I am an immortal. I have been stabbed, shot, burned, frozen, electrocuted. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. He's out of his gourd. But to get what his heart wants most... What are you looking for, Phil? A date for the weekend? ...means living this day over again, <laughs> till he gets it right. Believe it or not, I studied 19th century French poetry. <laughs> what a waste of time. I study 19th century French poetry. La fille qui You speak French. So, where to start with this film? So, this basically is the film famously starring Bill Murray and Annie McDowell. Basically about the idea of Groundhog Day. So, a man having to live out the exact same day over and over and over for God only knows how long. What do I say about uh, so what can I necessarily say about this film? First of all, I just I just need to sort of give a check just to know like have I reviewed Okay, well, Stephen, I'll assume you haven't. Uh, David, have you seen this film? Yeah, it's one of those which we mentioned before, which I've seen like parts of it on TV and stuff, but I've never sat down and been like, right, this experience Groundhog Day. So I always consider it a film which I've not properly watched. Fair. I can confirm that I have not watched Groundhog Day either. Cool. Yeah, so basically, Bill Murray is playing a weather, a, a weather presenter called Phil, who's incredibly cynical, basically a, a, a bit of a dick. Um, but he has to uh, he has to go to uh, Poxitoni in America to basically celebrate uh, their festival of Groundhog Day, which is basically uh, for anyone who knows the, the myth is basically uh, getting a groundhog to determine how many more weeks of winter there will be. And they go there. He basically has massive contempt because the, the groundhog in question is called Poxitoni Phil, obviously also a weather predicting creature. So he has a lot of resentment against this thing. Um, and they predict seven, uh, sorry, six more weeks of winter, which makes everyone sad. Um, but then he basically tries to leave, but there's a big blizzard keeping him there. And then rinse and repeat, he starts experiencing this day over and over and over. So he literally wakes up every morning having to listen to uh, Sonny and Shears, I Got You, Babe, and the banter on the radio that comes with it. Um, and what I love about this, so uh, first, first and foremost, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this film. It's quite light watching because it doesn't try and force anything on you because of the fact that it's literally just having to repeat the days over and over again. You can just see a lot of like the common threads going throughout it. There's no major, there's no major breaks of clarity. You can actually see quite a good level of progression. So there's no like single moment where he goes, I need to do this. It's literally small things over those days just build up so it's actually quite a really good piece of like developing character but essentially he goes for a few phases the first phase is the understandable what what's going on 
because everything is just acting the way the way he shouldn't be experiencing it and he's basically freaked out then he gets drunk and realizes that there's basically no consequences to this day and that's where he basically decides to just be more egocentric uh this is where you get like the sort of famous i think the famous clip of this film is where he's going through the street and there's that guy who knows him he approaches him it's just like it's like phil phil is that you ned punch just that just great moments like that and he also just memorizes like the movements of the people in the town so he's able to do things just like steal a lot of money uh and basically just spend it on whatever he wants then he realizes he can use this technique to basically pull women probably what i would consider the more uncomfortable part of the film just because of things but then i once you sort of realize that the entire film's message is not this is a good thing to do and sort of glorified he basically gets shut down for his actions you could tell that he really suffers for it. And I think that's one of the good outcomes of it. He basically realizes if he just goes up to women and asks them facts about their live, uh, lives on the first day, the second day he can go back and just know all these things. So he just goes up to a woman in, a, in like a, a diner and just says like, what's your name, Nancy? Uh, who, is your, who is your 12th grade English teacher? Uh, Mrs. Weathers or whatever it is. And he's like, cool. Thanks. Next day, he's like, Nancy, hey, it's me, Phil. We're in the same English class together. You know, Mrs. Weathers? And just, mm-hmm. just basically using those details to sort of uh, getting in. Uh, but then that sort of spurs him on to realize that he's actually interested in his producer, played by Andy McDowell. Uh, and he basically just starts living out these days to try and learn what her perfect man is to basically try and seduce her. But it never works. So he'll the furthest he gets is they're in the B&B together and he's basically trying to get her into bed and she always she always says no because as far as she's concerned, this is the second day they've ever met. So, you know, fast. But basically, because he ke- keeps trying to play out the day exactly as it was to get to that point where he could do something different, he ends up making mistakes throughout the day. So he never gets back to the B&B room, which basically sparks... Uh, probably is hopeless stage and this is the part where he tries to get out of the loop by kidnapping the groundhog kidnapping of a, a truck and driving himself the truck and this groundhog off a cliff the other famous scene from this film of that like ah <laughs> so shot yeah what well, my favorite part of it is it, it lands it crushes you can hear all of these horrible sound effects and it's just silence and then larry the camera guy um, who's just been there for all, all of this? He leaves with a couple of seconds. I mean, they could be okay. Instant explosion. Mm. <laughs> like, obviously, a try, like a sort of tired joke in some areas, but I think it was just the timing of it that made it really work to the point that they just left it so long to bring it up before the explosion actually happened. So, yeah, he basically then just has his hopeless period where he just tries to basically just tries to die in a variety of weird ways as you'd ex- expect there's one point where he basically takes a toaster to a bathtub uh he basically tries to get run over by a car he basically tries all num- manner of things but he just keeps waking up in the morning so eventually he just comes to this conclusion that he's a god and just cannot die but thankfully they don't do any stupid anymore there's no consequences i'm just going to rule over people he basically tries telling uh, Ruth, his producer, who he's falling for, uh, about it. 
He manages to do it by basically going around everyone in the diner and explaining their lives and what's going on with them. Um, the most notable being there's a there's a pair of teenagers about to get married, but the one is unsure. Um, and he's basically just going into a lot of descriptive detail. He's even counting down, look, in about five seconds, a waiter over there is going to drop a uh, tray of glasses. And that happens. So eventually she believes him and basically just sticks around with him for the, the entire day, just seeing what's happening and just proving this. Then obviously he wakes up the next day and she's gone and her memory of this is all gone. So then we get the final phase, which is he's decided to improve his life. So he just does a number of things uh, like he tries to save people's lives when he learns at what point in the day they're going to be in danger. Like he catches falling kids from trees. Uh, he goes into restaurants when a guy's choking and basically gives him the Heimlich. Uh, he just does all, he does loads of things like this. He also decides to try learning skills to improve his own life. So he takes up uh, ice sculpting and piano lessons, which is actually quite clever because he basically just goes for the same same lesson every day, but it just accumulates over time. So at first he's terrible at playing the piano, but then once he's done it like about 30 times or whatever, he's becoming quite a pro to the point that he's playing like a concert in the in the evening of one of the days and his piano teacher's there she's like i'm so proud he only started learning this morning but my favorite thing about that is he goes to this piano teacher's house he says hi i was learning to le uh, hoping to learn the piano could you fit me in she's like oh i'm really sorry i've got a student right now and we're booked up for the next couple of hours and he said i'll give you a thousand dollars just just wait one second goes into the house gets this girl throws her out literally just pushes her out the door and she's holding all of these all of these like piano recital books and she's there like uh. eventually then um because he's also starting to be nice to his uh his cameraman and his uh his producer like he goes to the he buys them coffee uh he he gives like the most beautiful sort of news address that anyone's heard um, to the point that other networks stop actually recording themselves and just listen to this guy. Um, and everyone's just moved. And this is where Ruth is just like, wow, this guy's sort of incredible. Uh, then at like the party at the night, all the people that he's helped throughout the day basically just keep coming up to him and thanking him. Like the newlywed couple, they eventually go through with it because he talked to them and made them see sense. Uh, he got them a, uh, a honeymoon gift, which is tickets to WrestleMania which they both loved. Yeah, WrestleMania, for some reason. They, they look like really sweet, innocent teens, and then he just gives them the envelope, and they're just like, WrestleMania tickets, yes! How did you know? And it's just really wholesome, and eventually then there's like a bachelor auction, which everyone starts bidding massively over, over Phil, but then Ruth basically just spends, like I think it's $333.88, Something like that, uh, where basically he then spend, spends the evening with her and he basically says, look, no matter what happens, so long as I know I've made you happy, I, I don't care what happens next. So that's sort of his moment of revelation. Um, and he wakes up the next day and it's a new day. And Ruth had stayed in the bedroom with him and he's he's basically overjoyed. And that's the basic plot of Groundhog Day. Um, ironic that a film that basically covers the events of a single day has so much plot, but like i genuinely loved it like bill murray is just the perfect sort of dry sarcastic uh wit kind of character uh well uh, actor um 
because even though he sort of has like the same tone throughout all of it, you can just there's just so much nuance to the way that he's he's just taking everything that even though he's at the same tone, there's just so much emotional range. He's just fantastic. Everyone else is sort of hard to evaluate on the performances because oftentimes they are just having to repeat lines, but it was just like a lovable cast of characters and like so many beautifully eccentric people just out of nowhere. It's just really enjoyable. Although if I have to listen to Sunny and Shears, I got you babe one more time. I'm going to scream. Even on the day when like he wakes up and everything's gone back to normal, they're still playing that song. And I was like, guys, why would you do this? Although it's a different part of the song. So if for anyone who's like an eagle eyed listener, they'll just go, ah, it's changed. Oh, he's going to be so happy. Wait, he hasn't noticed. Oh, the banter has made him notice. Oh, Although it ends weirdly because he basically, because bear in mind, he's now with the producer and like she's sort of fallen for him. And he's just like, let's move to Puxatawney. It's beautiful here. I'm just like, dude, she's known you for like two days at this point. Simmer down with the let's move to a completely different part of the country. I think what's interesting about a comedy is it makes it different in terms of expectations, doesn't it? There's not this kind of like, oh, it's got this big mantle on top of it unless it is kind of like a life of brian like this is one of the greatest comedies of all time but so you can easily be surprised by the jokes or the humor unless you've had those gags ruined for you so there's not this big weight of like a dramatic story or these big performances so you can still as easily enjoy it or be surprised by it because there's not as much riding on it i guess Uh, did you find that that was the case or i mean for me, I think I was just more looking for how they handled the sort of personal ideas because I think from like various like top top 50 comedy movies of all time lists that Channel 4 used to do, I think I was sort of aware of like all of the jokes they necessarily would cover about the repetition of events. Uh, you know, things like the, I'm just going to start punching random people in the street. I'm basically going to just steal this money and get away with it. It's those sort of events. Um, but I still find them, I still find them funny and enjoyable for me. It was just, how do they handle the emotional storylines and how did, how does this sort of romance sort of develop for, you know, both characters and how can they make that believable? So yeah, to an extent, I, I say that's the case. For me, you know, it's, it's a film that I've never watched and, like, you know, with many <laughs> after today, but it's a film that I've always heard about and others have always had good experiences with it. And um, I was just wondering, you know, Bill Murray, when you said he is a good fit for this, I think you hit it on the head because I couldn't really think of anybody else who could play that character, you know, with his sarcasm and his wit. I think they've got the cast and on that character really well. And um, I feel like you feel pretty similar about that. Yeah. That's why I'm intrigued about now seeing like the stage version as well, because I just don't know how they adapt a character to, like that to one who is a younger. I know for a fact he's younger in the stage version, which is a bit weird, but whatever they think makes it work. Um, but also how are they going to be able to keep the sort of same cynical edge of somebody who basically just has to sing every now and then? And like he has some cracking songs. I'm obsessed with the soundtrack, but like. I don't know how you can just be the sort of person who just goes, I'm just going to casually count the movements of the security of the security deposit delivery drivers and just 
count until the point where there's a blind spot so I can just steal bags of money. Uh, I don't know how you're going to be able to do that in a very jaunty way or even just casually punching an insurance salesman on the street. It, it brings a question on there. What, what would you do if you had no consequences and the same thing was happening to you? I mean, have you ever thought about that? What, what you guys would do, ever do? This is a weird philosophical question to uh, pounce on. Especially for Cree. <laughs> What do you mean, especially for what it's you imply? Like, well, chaos know. could come from it. Don't let me remind you of your response to like, what would you do if you're on the Titanic? Yeah, all, all right. <laughs> I can tell you what I'd do if that would help. All right. So I would make it my life goal to basically go to as many stores as I could in one day around an area and just take all the blue and red M&Ms out of the packet and just put them back and just really see if that would have any sort of disastrous effects in the world. Okay. I mean, as far as scope goes, it, it's not up there. No. <laughs> I'd probably just go for the obvious of, you know, go in to see what the lottery is and then the next day winning the lottery. <laughs> yeah, but presumably you wouldn't get much time to enjoy that money, right? Because. Yeah. But you could just win the lottery every day. Yeah, but you win the lottery at like, what, eight o'clock at night? That, mm. gi- that gives you a couple of hours to get the money, spend True. the money in any significant way before you then fall asleep and wake back up? Hell of a night. <laughs> to be fair, I'd, I'd like to change mine. After, after listening to Dave's, I feel like mine is a bit... A million dollars or M&M's? <laughs> I think I know what, what mine would be. I think mine would just be in the morning messaging various people I'm attracted to saying, look, I'm attracted to you until somebody says they're attracted back and just seeing... Because I think that get I think that gets round the sort of ethical issues of you getting information to use against them. Because if I just ask them there and then, and then whatever happens that day happens that day, I haven't abused anything. You're just taking the chance, and then if uh, if the, the the cycle ends, then you know, oh well, I know this information now. <laughs> yeah, but also like if I tell someone I really like you, and they say I'm really uncomfortable with this information, next day I just don't tell them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, lastly, I would say just, obviously, I think something important we're talking about these films as well is the when you watch them as well is the context they went into the movie vault with. Because again, we're not saying this is a vault full of just the greatest films of all time because they go in there like, oh, this is to represent this, this is to represent that. So obviously there, you also mentioned there is a very chilled movie. So it does sound like it, it went in at the right time as well. So do you think it deserves this place in there for the reasons it went in? Or for any oh, I mean, after all. Well? After an entire year of what I can imagine for people, it just feels like waking up and it's the exact same day. I think it's more than earned its place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think Cullinane did us a solid there by bringing us that film. He psychically predicted the next year, even though he thought everything would be fine by June. He actually, deep down, knew Groundhog Day would be. Oh, he just cursed us. What he did is he put Groundhog Day into this and it's just like, that's the effect <laughs> we now live in. So yeah, that was uh, Groundhog Day, which uh, Craig agrees deserves its place in the movie vault and he thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, We'll now go on to our next one. So we'll go to yourself, Steve. What did you choose from the movie vault? So I chose the classical Sweeney Todd, the 2007 version where Tim Burton created a musical masterpiece, if you would. And I believe you and your 
you and Craig picked this one from For the Vault in the episode of What Movies Didn't Make the Vault, so that's quite interesting. This is the tale of an ordinary man who had everything. Barker's name was Benjamin Barker. Until a man of power stole his freedom, destroyed his family, and banished him. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. For life. And in his sorrow, a new man was born. Fifteen years dreaming. I might come home to a wife and child. Benjamin Parker. Not Barker. Sweeney Todd now. And he will have his revenge. Who's my wife? She's gone. And he's got your daughter. Judge Tuffin. you got to leave this all behind you now. No. These are desperate times. And desperate measures are called for. All right! You, sir! No one's in the chair. Come on, come on! Sweeney's waiting. I want you, pleaders. You, sir! Two, sir! Welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. I'm not really a fan of musicals. I never really have been. So I, I started this journey expecting it to be a tough watch. And in the beginning, it was... It was giving me those vibes, but I sort of softened up to it. And I like the musical numbers, the mix with the acting, the mix with the actual storyline. I feel like it worked really well. So it, as far as musicals go, for me, it was very much one of the best ones I've seen. And I think it's a lot to do with um, how it's presented, how Tim Burton sort of presents Johnny Depp. And, you know, he he really does make him the star of the show. And Johnny Depp had to, he had a lot of challenges for this movie. He, he isn't a singer by trade. He had to learn that craft. And I think he did a really good job in sort of pulling it off. And I think the musical aspect of the film stands out straight away. I mean, you have a song for pretty much every, not every scene, but pretty much every scene there's a song. So it, it has to be good, but it also has to be good for the story. And I think the way the acting sort of combines with the musical numbers it really does do it justice but obviously you know Tim Burton didn't create this film it's the first one sort of appeared in 1930 and then another one in 1980 and then even then it was sort of this tale it was a Victorian um, character if you would and it found itself into literature into film and eventually even a fake version went to um, found itself to America where someone took a novel and took Sweeney Todd and did an American version of it which um, would be an interesting read if anybody ever had that copy. But yeah, I think Tim Burton does the whole process justice. He really does come through with a great telling of the original story. And it, it's noted that he keeps a lot of the features in there from the original. Like, um, for example, Sweeney Todd in his barbershop, he has a trap door. He's always had a trap door in uh, the retelling. So he kept that in there, which I, it's just little nods like that, which made the, um, the film that little bit extra special. Yeah, some scenes throughout the film, really. Let's talk about the opening scene. The, um, you know, there's no place like London, where you've got um, Sweeney Todd coming into London on this, what can only be described as a ghost ship, because it doesn't look like a normal ship, but that's just the smog of Victorian London. 
So, yeah, you've got this scene with, with Sweeney Todd and Anthony coming into London and Anthony is so glad to be back. He's singing his little heart out that, you know, this is this is his town, this is London, there's no place like it. And then you've just got the sinister undertones of um, Sweeney Todd creeping in and then he just changes the complete flow of the musical scene, musical number. And that's when you start to think this is going to be a very dark, a very classic Tim Burton film where he remixes it and puts his own sort of um, thoughts in it. And someone like Johnny Depp really brought that out. And that's what I really, I really thought to myself in that first scene, I thought I'm going to enjoy this, even though it's a musical and it's not really my sort of forte. I think I'm going to enjoy the darkness of it almost. And you can tell that in the secret, when it's open in the sequence, it's very, um, very dark themed. And I thought to myself, I'm going to enjoy this. As far as musicals go, I think um, this one, when you're doing your research and when you're looking at it, it's got such high praise from critics um, and it got a lot of nominations, a lot of Oscar nominations. And yeah, it was a, um, a really good watch that I would thoroughly, um, I'm thoroughly glad I picked from the vault and I'm glad I got to experience it and sort of tick it off my list, if you would. What was your experience, like you said, with, or what was the hesitancy with musicals in the past? You know, what, because a lot of people can just as a genre, just be like, I just don't like singing and dancing, or they just don't like the, the lightheartedness of them or the lack of story. Like, so like you pointed out, this can fix that for a lot of people, because at least it's more darker and it's got more story to it. So they don't mind the music then as much, but there might still be people out there who are like, no, I still can't deal with the music. Like I, I knew somebody who was like a massive South Park fan, but would literally rewind through the music and songs of the South Park movie because they just couldn't stand singing and dancing that much. <laughs> Whereas it, it was still in one of their favorite cartoons. So how, how did you come um, along on that? You know, what was your past feelings on musicals? Yeah, so my past feelings on musicals, and I've just never really vibed with them. I think... The Sound of Music I have watched and I just didn't really like it. And um, even going into my teen years when, you know, everything was, when High School Musical was big, for example, I just never jumped on the bandwagon because I just never really enjoyed singing. I, I found it cringy. And sometimes I do, I still to this day, I just want to see acting. I don't want to see musicals, but I think you've got to be more open going into it. And with this one, which it works so well as a musical, musical and it, was, it did amazing on Broadway, I think you have to realise that the music is a part of the film in itself. If you take the music out, maybe it won't be as good because you've got some great songs in there and some great soundtracks that are that are really meant to be in the film and it, it kind of helped convey the story a little bit better. You've got Sweeney Todd giving a shave and he's singing and you're sort of looking at his actions as well as the um, as well as him singing and it, it just blends together quite nicely. What I did to get not get through this movie, but what I found helped is looking at the actions, what they were doing when they were singing. So it wasn't just, you know, you were watching someone stand still and maybe maybe just sing a song. They were just doing other stuff to keep you entertained. And that's what I liked about this um, this particular film. It sort of focused in on the action and it honed in on what the actual characters were doing, opposed to just the singing, which you see in some other musicals. Yeah, and I guess actually, you know, a good way of differentiating them is also knowing the name of it, which we probably should have mentioned before in, in the past when we put it in the vault, is that it is... Sweeney Todd the demon barber of Fleet Street and that is the name of the original musical which is based on uh, so again I know 
Craig has a lot of knowledge and feelings towards the original musical, uh, which sort of helped him to appreciate this one a bit more uh, because it's originally from uh, Stephen Soderheim. So what are your thoughts on, on the original Craig, you know, with uh, what sort of facts or info can you give us about the, the stage version? Well, before I give you facts on the stage version, I basically just want to fact check one thing Stephen said. It did indeed win an Academy Award. It was for Best Art Design, which makes sense considering there are no original songs in the film. So it would be yeah. a bit of a rip if it won Best Original Song for, for things that didn't exist. Um, there were also nominations for Johnny Depp as Best Lead, which I thought was quite interesting. It is a really good performance, but I'm su- surprised, but in a sort of good way that the academy would sort of recognize it as one just because yeah. a lot of it is done in the manner of the you know the songs so there's not as many like emotional beats apart from just outside of the songs however one thing i think that the film does that i think probably would have helped steven enjoy it a bit more uh because it makes itself less typical to the other uh to like other musicals uh, actually, I'll see if um, Stephen noticed this. All of the song numbers in the film, um, did was there anything you noticed that was a bit odd about it, as opposed to, say, I know you haven't watched many musicals, but the musicals you, that you said you've seen, you've seen Sound of Music, right? What was yeah. something that Sound of Music had that, say, Sweeney Todd didn't? I don't know if, it's, if I'm correct, but was the Sound of Music... Did they actually sing that there and then, and it wasn't pre-recorded? No, no, no. Um, no, that was a technique that only really started with uh, Les Mis, uh, Les Mis Rob's in 2012. No, I mean the type of songs. I'll see if David knows what I mean. Uh, yeah, isn't it? This one doesn't have any chorus songs. Yeah, there's no ensemble. The original stage music uh, musical had ensemble songs, so they had like. Uh, chorus so you know the music that's playing over the introduction you know they have the the mechanisms with the blood that song has lyrics those lyrics are great but they are not sung in in the tim burton version because it was sung it was sung by the ensemble go and listen to it out because i think it's just a great introduction to the to the film i understand why it wouldn't have worked for burton but i think it just works for like going into listening to it's literally called De- uh sweeney todd the demon Bar- barber of fleet street but listen to it it's a cracking song but i think that probably would have helped you because once you take out the ensemble it focuses all the character focuses all the songs onto being character pieces which means that exactly as you say you focus on when they're singing them why they're singing them it doesn't look as frivolous as opposed to if you just have like random people dancing on the street i think the closest you probably get to that is Granted, my favourite scene, because I think it's stupid, is the uh, Adolfo Pirelli, um, the King of the Barbers. That's probably the closest you get to sort of frivolous. But even then, I love the character. <laughs> it's it's so scene. stupid. Yeah, it's a great scene. Just this Italian sport, wherever he's from, just walking out in his blue massive suit. <laughs> just, yeah, just that. I, I really like that scene as well. Especially for a film that's so dull and grey and drained of colour and character up until the and then you have this big, huge character come out with... Played by Sasha Barrico. Yes, yeah. Uh, Probably the last thing I would say then about like the original stage version, or at least the version that I've seen a recording of, the staging was done in a really unique way. They they had essentially all of the, the sets basically built into one giant cube. 
And when they wanted to change the scene, they would just spin the cube around, which I thought was cool. And I, I, I wish the film, obviously, it would have no way of being able to replicate that effect. But I wish there was some way that could be paid homage to. But it eh, doesn't matter. I thought the film was great. Yeah, I think it still feels quite contained, which is good. But like you said, you do lose that. And I think, like you said, Craig, is the that's why the ensemble works so well on stage, etc. Because they sort of bring you into that atmosphere you're in like a theater and it's echoing off the walls etc but here it works because it sort of grounds it more and it appeals to people who aren't big musical fans i think that transitions nicely into one of the other elements of the film uh, which i know the people i've watched it with have had before which we mentioned already about the music i remember one of my uh, old housemates said oh i didn't realize it was a musical so when i watched it years ago i just turned it off once i realized and i was like well, come on, you know, you, you were attracted to the story and to the film itself, you know, at least give it a chance. So, you know, he watched it years later and again, he was the same. He was like, yeah, that one isn't so bad because it's helped by the characters, the story, but also the violence. I remember watching this originally, I think, as like, it was like Halloween or something and it wasn't long after it came out and I thought, oh, what a great film to watch on Halloween. And yeah, it was because there's a lot of like blood and violence in it. So what, what did you make of that, Steve? Yeah, I um, went off and watched, um, you know, when they do kill counts for movies on YouTube and you watch one of them, I watched one of them. And I think it was double figure um, kill count with two women being killed and the rest men. And some of the brutality of the killings were, were oh, they were up there. Yeah. And you'd think it's just a quick slit of the throat, but there is a lot of blood there. And they've had a lot of, um, a lot of special effects come in, I think. You know, the one that really stood out for me, and it stands out for everyone because it's such a dramatic killing, is, um, spoiler alert, I'm going to say that now, but is the um, is the killing of um, the judge and yeah. just how graphic that is of him going, Benjamin Barker! Yeah. He just shoves it in his throat repeatedly and blood splatters everywhere and over Todd, and that really stayed with me. And I was, I was in the film, I was thinking, why is this an 18? I got to like an, an hour in maybe before anyone gets killed or... 40 minutes whatever it is and I was thinking this dish just seems like a 15 but then I saw mm. the brutality and I was like okay this is deserving of the age rating yeah because that was the thing but before it came out a lot of people I think even the studio was kind of like this is not going to be easy to sell to audiences especially because some of Tim Burton's fans can be younger or like teenagers but he was like no like we need to have this it is essential to the character you need to have the violence he's slitting people's throats there's no other way around that um, which I think is great because it goes to show, again, it's not that kind of like gratuitous use of violence, which some filmmakers are accused of. It's Tim Burton, who, again, is like a dark, gothic sort of storyteller who hasn't really used that kind of violence before. But it goes to show that he's still willing to use it when the time is right. And yeah, it, it makes sense, because if you do slit somebody with the throat, then it is going to sort of like gush out like that. There's no sort of like getting around that. And again, it, it's a big draw, actually, for a lot of people who are not fans of the musical side. It adds to that sort of brutality and to the darkness of the story, which I think is good. And that scene you mentioned, probably another one which might have helped Depp towards his award nomination. I think an, el an element of that, when you mentioned it, Craig, was as well, at that time, Johnny Depp was kind of one of those actors where they often, the Academy's like, we want to reward this actor. We want to, like, show that he's done a lot of good stuff. And, you know, this film comes along in which he does a good performance, which, again, might not be, say, Oscar-worthy, but they, they're willing to make it Oscar-worthy because they want to, rec you know, award that actor just for his body of work. And at that time, he was, like, quite a big name. 
So I think that 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 is interesting as well. And like you said, Steve, he's not actually really a singer or anything, but I think he manages to pull it off because again, the type of songs that they're doing, it's more about speaking the story and what he's thinking rather than just putting on this big vocal performance, which I think is impressive as well. Well, if we're going to be talking about actors who who aren't singers but manage to get through it by speak singing, we've got to talk about Alan Rickman. Yeah, we have to speak about Alan Rickman and um, possibly what me and Dave have been doing all week to each other is when we will take on versions of Alan Rickman on voice notes and just sing the Pretty Woman song that him and uh, Johnny Depp do <laughs> make so good. Yeah, that was a that was a frequent jo- uh, joke as, again, as I said with my housemates years ago. Just that pretty women, you know, like how they just mentioned in different things, flower picking. So we'd just be like making tea, <laughs> making coffee, silhouetting. That's always my favorite one. Silhouetting. Like it's just, oh, look at the silhouette of that woman. Yeah, it's a it's a very um striking song. I went actually. I've been listening to a bit of the um, soundtrack on Spotify, and the way that song starts off is so dark, and you know. Oh, you're thinking, when's he going to do it? When's he going to actually do the job? And it's nice because it gets more cheery and it gets more on. And that's when I started to think, okay, maybe this isn't the scene he's going to eventually do it because it's just too cheery a song to kill someone. Yeah. Oh, the beauty of that being the point. Oh, it's, it's such a tense scene. I, I love it. And then obviously ruined by... That idiot Anthony just running in. But like you said, you wouldn't then maybe get the violence of that moment that he ha- you know, he has later on because he says in that moment, doesn't he? He's just like, I should have just done it. Why did I wait, etc. As if he was going to do a quick revenge kill. And you're like, well, if you want revenge, you know, you it wouldn't have been worth it just to quickly get it done. So at the end, then he's makes him know what's happening in, in that uh, situation, etc. Uh, on the music, what was it? Was there anything else that stood out to you in terms of in terms of the songs or, you know, just the style as, as a whole? Yeah, um, in terms of songs, I really love the scene. I think it's called um, the song, you know, My Friends, when he's got his blades and he's sort of bringing them up to the light and that's almost like Sweeney Todd growing stronger and sort of the darkness, the monster coming up. So that was a really song, song that stood out for me. And in the whole term of um, the style of it, I just really liked how it matched everything about the film. Um, I think almost every song had an element of darkness to it, even if it was presented in a cheery fashion. So even with Miss Lovett, she might be singing in a cheery, cheery way, but it's the actual context of what she's speaking about, which is what makes it dark. And that's in a sense what makes Sweeney Todd. So I just love the whole style of the musical numbers. And I think it fitted really well with the film. Yeah, by, um, by the sea, I definitely think it has like a great air of that. You know, talking about basically being meant to be having this sort of idyllic little life, but even then, it just feels dark and bleak. It's probably that's one of my favorites, and it's probably the most Burton-esque in a way as well, because you've literally got two like goths on a beach, like in in swimwear, and it's all bright and sunny, but they look like ridiculous in that in that situation. Do you um do you want to know who one of the original actresses to play Mrs. Lovett was on stage? I think I remember this. Angela Lansbury. Yeah. AKA Murder She Wrote, uh, the voice of Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast, was Mrs. Lovett. But this is interesting because um, obviously you read online and they say, oh, you know, Helena Burnham Carter only got the role because she was going out with Tim Burton, but she actually auditioned for the role. And um, I think she was quite um, worthy of it. If we're speaking about casting and stuff like that, I think 
she his singing was really good in it. I think that was something that stood out for me with um, how strong that came across. For me as well, the story as a whole just works quite well because it leads up to that finale. And looking at the track list, I was kind of like surprised. I was like, oh, it's not really until the actual end of the album that you get, you know, My Friends and Lil Priest, you know, so it's not really until sort of like the last act that it all really starts to turn into the like we are making people into pies kind of stuff. By the Sea comes in. Um, that's when like the, the orphan sings the song about like how he'll protect Mrs. Lovett. So that's why I was enjoyed about like, well, where's this going? It's all building up to this. And that final act really like a wraps everything up perfectly just in that cellar essentially of you know that's when the kid comes in it makes sense why he sung that song you know why that weird lady has been singing the entire time you know why mrs lovett has been like gushing over sweeney todd so much you know it it comes together really really well i think how bad did those pies look in one of the beginning scenes they're in that song and the cockroaches are crawling all over it and it's green on it yeah it's like a nail sticking out or something isn't there and you're like oh <laughs> they do look a lot better when they start using um, should we say uh, better ingredients <laughs> one scene that they decide to make needlessly graphic in comparison to uh, any of the original musical versions is you know when why can't I remember the, the daughter's name Joanna. Joanna, of course it's Joanna. It's had the entire song called Joanna. How yeah. did I forget? Uh, when they were rescu- when he's uh, rescuing her from the asylum. And basically, what happens to the guard? Oh, yeah, yeah. When with all of his, what does he call him? He calls him his, like, children or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they basically just, like, gouge him to death, right? That's yeah. not how he dies in the stage musical. He just gets shot. <laughs> just like, oh. it's like just like nope this film isn't about guns this is about knives and like slitting people's it's throats it's like Burton stuff. saw that and it's just like that. that's kind of dark but what if guys what if we did this well some would call you a psychopath and your point being mm-hmm. alright Tim do it do it I kind of wish it was Anthony in that role because, you know, that it just brought up bad memories of that song, Joanna, and it just went on for way too long. Or maybe it was just him saying his name, her name for too long. <laughs> it was... See, I yeah, I've always thought that with that song. But actually, when I re-listened, because we were talking so much about Pretty Women as the song, and so I like re-listened to that. And when it like continued, you know, maybe the album was on shuffle or something like that. And it went to Joanna and I always found that in the in the musical, you're kind of like, oh yeah, it's just like the love ballad. But I did actually come to appreciate that a lot more because the actual, the rhythm and actual melody of the song is actually really nice. And because, like Craig said, because there's no like big ensemble pieces, it does actually turn into quite a big song by the end in terms of like turning quite triumphant and quite eclectic at the end and i was like so i I did come to appreciate it a bit more i think maybe in the film itself they could have done maybe more to make it visually interesting but the actual song i came to appreciate a bit more because the actual melody is really nice same for me the song that i I think goes a bit too long and great on my nerves is a greenfinch and greenfinch and mockingbird or something no it's like linnetbird or something like that but i'm not sure if that's a thing (laughs) that's the song i'm just like okay this is this is cool but it just, just feels a bit too Eh, it's a bit yeah. too symbolic for me. All it is is literally Joanna just observing these birds who are freedom. I'm just like, could you just make it a little bit more about you, please? Yeah. It's a bit too kind of floaty and just too simplistic. 
what I really liked about this film is, you know, how um, Judge Turpin and um, Beadle Bamford, they were just two hateable characters from the moment go. Right. Like, and it, it's a scene that stays with me is, you know, they have that costume party and what goes on and the judge does what he does. Um, from that moment, I just was really look, looking forward to when the Beadle eventually got killed because he was my least favourite character because he was just yeah. such an arsehole. For the, throughout the entirety of the film, even when he's judging the comp, judging the shave competition, he's just so pompous with it, and he's just it almost comes through the screen. You're just like, oh, I can't wait till you get the uh, razor. Poor Tom, poor Timothy Spall. He never plays like a nice guy, does he? He's just he's like worm tail in every film he's in. He's just always there, like. <laughs> I just kept looking at him, being like, like, shut up, Peter Pettigrew. Exactly. <laughs> So, uh, Steve, uh, finally, did, so did what was your expectations going into it? Did you do you feel that it deserves this place in the vault? So, even though we put it in as films that didn't make it in, it came from that musical episode, and part of that episode was a bit about stage to film adaptations, and a lot of people will highlight it as one of the better stage to film adaptations. So, do you think it deserves to go in on the basis of a great musical? And is there any other elements do you think that it deserves to go in? especially based on what you were expecting going in? Did it change your expectations? Was it different? Was it matched? I think when I initially started the film, I made the decision that I was going to pick Sweeney Todd. I wanted to push myself out my comfort zone mm. because I, like I said before, I don't watch musicals or I have very limited experience with them. So when I eventually got into the film, I realised that it was quite an enjoyable sequence and it, it told the story really well through the music and through the characters and through the events. And I think it's fully deserving of a place in the movie vault. I think not just from, you know, all the plaudits it's got in the past, but just from my, from, you know, how it can take someone who isn't an avid musical fan and maybe slowly start turning them. And that's, that's what it did. It, it made me, it's very rare that I will go, onto Spotify and type in a soundtrack of a film. And that's what I've been doing this week. Yeah. So for me, that was quite striking. And that's when I sort of realised that this film resonated with me and something that I really did enjoy. 100% fully deserving of a place in the movie vault. And yeah, I think everyone involved did a great job. And um, Tim Burton could be proud, Johnny Depp can be proud, and everyone else involved in that movie can be really proud. Yeah, Steve enjoyed uh, Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, which is in the movie vault. And we now go on to our last film, which is the film I decided to watch. So uh, the one I went with was from our Joker episode, where we were talking all about the character and was linked to when uh, the film was coming out, directed by Todd Phillips, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Joker. And this was placed uh, as a suggestion uh, by our guest, Kyle Sean Thomas, and it is the 1928 film, The Man Who Laughs. Definitely one of the oldest films we have in the vault and the oldest film we're talking about today, uh, which makes it very different. And we were obviously talking so much about the DC comic book character in that episode. We were talking about the different iterations with Heath Ledger and 
Mark Hamill, etc. So most of the stuff we were discussing and put into the vault in that episode with the different Batman films and different representations. So this one always really stood out to me because I, I appreciated the Kyle brought in that extra element of here is an inspiration for the character of the Joker, a character who is, you know, from a French novel, which was made into a film. And then the look of the character in that film is what inspired many of the drawings and depictions of the Joker when the character was created for the comics. And you can definitely see how that has stuck with the character uh, this entire time within his publication history and also his film history. So I was really intrigued to go back to this because it's obviously a silent film especially, so it was striking to me that a silent film made such an impression in terms of like a visual character it wasn't just like where we've talked previously about charlie chaplin etc because there again it's it's comedy and it's sort of used in terms of like a, the same character the tramp and all that kind of stuff or a lot of silent films will be a lot shorter but this is an hour and 50 minutes as well so you know it's quite a big silent film and you know especially when you just have to have those title you know the cards of just what the characters are saying that's quite a long time to to do that for and this is also remembered and lauded for being a very famous sort of dark gothic sort of romance. Uh, but also a lot of people have mentioned it as one of the first sort of like horror sort of films. Or it's got a lot of horror tropes. And I can understand why they've said that. Because you can see that this did maybe lead to things like Frankenstein, like Dracula. The idea of, you know, the sympathetics or female roles within it but also the outcast character who is a freak to everyone else and they can't accept him that element and just his appearance in general is quite horrific Um, but it doesn't really have anything that's actually scary or like you know jump moments or anything like that but going into it I wasn't sure if there would be that so that's why I chose it because I was like well now, how much is going to actually be scary or dark about this film, considering it was made in 1928 and it's a silent film? Because sometimes it does appear on those lists of films which you get, which are like films that couldn't be shown or were hidden from society. Because possibly when this was first released, there was a lot of people who were just freaked out by the general look of a man who basically can't stop smiling. So for those who don't know, uh, the basic premise of The Man Who Laughs is that there is a character who is called uh, Gwynplaine. Um, forgiveness for, you know, if I mispronounce any of these characters' names, but again, it's a silent film, so I can't hear how they're actually pronounced. And uh, he, so at the beginning, we see that there's like this king. Uh, he's told by his sword jester that a character has been uh, found and it's like a lord. Um, so he's maybe been like taken hostage previously and they found him um and when he goes to speak to this uh, hostage uh, he's asking about his son and uh, the the king tells him that his son has been uh sort of disfigured by uh characters which i believe are called Campracico. so basically they're kind of like gypsy travelers who would like mutilate and alter people uh, for the purposes of like entertainment and circuses and shows um, so they could sort of make money from them and that kind of stuff. So they give this uh, boy to 
the set of people. There was a specific doctor who then changed it so that his smi- so his mouth looked like he had a permanent grin and looked like he was constantly laughing. And this was done because they felt that his father was a fool. So they did it at the expense of his father to say, wouldn't it be funny if he was to laugh forever at his fool of a father? So when this uh, guy comes back, who's actually a lord, the king essentially kills him because he's uh, potentially a, a threat to how much like he he's entitled to as a lord and that kind of stuff. Um, we then see that the the people who did this to uh, Gwynplaine are being chased out of the country because of all the crimes that they've done. Uh, so all these people, so like gypsies etc get onto a boat and they abandon the child because they say this is basically evidence of you know what we've been doing and then uh Gwynplaine goes out uh he's on his own in the snow and the cold he finds uh, an old woman uh who's got like a baby uh in her arms the woman is dead the child is potentially like on his last legs so Gwynplaine takes this baby with him as well he then uh, eventually comes across this sort of traveling uh cart and inside uh there is a man uh who is known as ursus and he's basically like a playwright performer he takes them both in uh he gives them food he notices that the baby is unfortunately blind and that's sort of our premise our start into the story so yeah all joys and rainbows guys <laughs> so Sorry, we, that's only the start. Uh, yeah, but uh, very much kind of like, like I said, you know, your old gothic fairy tales and that kind of stuff is like these horrible circumstances for these characters. Uh, but we jump uh, several years into the future, and at this point, then Gwynplaine is Gwynplaine and uh, the girl who's called uh, D, uh, which is D E A. They saw work uh, with uh, Ursus, and they help him with his shows and everything like that and Gwynplaine has basically become this character known as the man who laughs so he's the sort of title character and he's known then across the land or the country as the man who laughs uh, because of his infamous grin and he puts on this sort of act and they put on these kind of shows which are like sort of mythology kind of shows and you know saying about like you know D also plays like you know sort of angelic type characters and Ursus is able to write in these sort of like epic stories and then the man who laughs comes in as this big like sort of character which makes people laugh and sort of get attached to him and they sort of enjoy him and eventually all of this you know as they're going around there they become a part of like a traveling carnival uh so you know he's known as like the laughing man and we see that there's like in this carnival there's obviously like freak shows and that kind of stuff and there's a man who takes notice of him because he's got one of those shows in which he's got things like a five-legged cow and you know different lions and tigers and you know and he's got little people etc and he's you know he's basically pt barnum <laughs> well from uh, the great showman and uh he notice he recognizes uh, Gwynplaine though basically and he actually turns out to be the character who uh, give him that permanent grin so he is one of those Comprachico people uh, he tells uh, Ursus about this and he says that he wants to like speak to Gwynplaine um, but he sort of keeps him away from him uh, so the doctor who disfigured him 
uh, decides to take this information to the queen. So the king has now died. There's a queen and there's a duchess also at this kingdom. And basically he writes a note to say that I know the living heir of this lord who died and he is basically the lord and heir of your fortune and your estate. And once the essentially the jester is still around who told the king about the the lord coming back and all that kind of stuff he's now got himself as like the the queen's sort of secondhand man and the sort of you know he's got himself more of a a higher ranking role within the the state and everything like that so he uses it to his advantage and he wants to give himself more power and he says that the duchess who lives there is basically going to have to marry Gwynplaine in order to keep her her role uh, as duchess etc so the queen uh, decrees that this man must be uh, captured and taken in so that they can marry off the duchess to to Gwynplaine and that all leads to then later on he's captured and everything Ursus and D thinks that he's been killed uh, so they uh, leave the country they're told that they have to go by the morning otherwise they'll be killed uh, so they start to, like go to go on a boat uh, but then eventually Gwynplaine struggles to get on board with this marriage and being turned into a lord because everyone starts laughing as soon as they see the massive grin and smile he has on his face. And uh, he basically runs out of the, the court. And there's also this other lord who's kind of like encouraging him to go because basically he was previously meant to hook up with the Duchess. So he kind of wants him out of the picture so he can get back with the Duchess. Uh, he runs away. The jester kind of starts running after him with all the armies and everything like that. Um, but thankfully, Gwynplaine is able to get on the boat uh, before it completely leaves the harbour. And he reveals himself to Ursus and Dee, who are overjoyed to see him. And, you know, they have a, a happy reunion and uh, him and Dee can now get married and uh, live their happy life together. Uh, whereas the jester... Uh, which I'll get on to later, suffers a horrible, horrible death. And it is a fantastic death because of one certain character, which I'll highlight later. But yeah, this is quite, you know, like I said, from you could tell, a very dark film. It gets more, like I said, the opening is very grim and the, the story, the idea itself is very tragic. But it's kind of like a Hunchback of Notre Dame sort of situation. It's very much like this disfigured character who's cast out by society um, but you still then have like a lot of heart and happy sort of moments brought in more through the romance and the sort of bigger picture of the you know the, the courts and the kings and the queens and all that kind of stuff the, the circus and the shows that they put on so again it doesn't it doesn't turn into like a kind of Dracula Frankenstein like a horror story it turns into very much a kind of melodrama this sort of like romantic uh situation in which it's you know they're they're torn lovers you know they they want to get married uh d and Gwynplaine, but they're torn apart and you know he, he's trying to be made up into a lord and that kind of stuff which is interesting and it, it makes sense to the time you know they were telling a lot of those kinds of stories and especially because it's from a novel uh, but i think the strengths of the film really are just in the image of the the man who laughs he's got such a striking look and like i said google this as soon as you you've, you know we've finished here because it is. It's actually, you know, it would it will stay with you, because, and you can see why it inspired Joker, and that's why it made sense for for Kyle to bring it up because just the look alone, and it's unfortunate that he doesn't get more moments within the film, 
to do it, but they at one point show the man who laughs on stage doing his bit in his show, and he sort of makes himself up in white, and he does look terrifying. He's got like these really big teeth, and he's sort of like, he's got like this huge grin, sort of like black kind of lips, like all black around his eyes. He's got like sort of swept back hair, so he pretty much does look like the Joker. And there's a part where he sort of goes into the curtain and you just see his head. There's other moments where he's sort of dressed in black and he's on the side. And it's strange to have a character that you don't know what their emotions are as much because you're like, oh, he's happy. Oh, wait, no, he can't do anything else bar happy. So you get these really tragic and really impactful moments in which he's like crying and looking like distraught and horrified, but he has no option to have this like horrific smile. So when people are there like laughing at him and making fun of him or he's distraught because he's taken away from D, he's literally just there like with this huge grin on his face and like tears pouring down his his face and he's like doing this big physical performance. So it's very gothic and dramatic in in that sense so yeah i think the imagery of it is really impactful and what it does to set up later horror films i think it's also important to be in the vault because it does seem to act as a lot of inspiration for then later horror stories and like monster stories and that kind of stuff and it does have a lot of nice and touching themes to it the fact that d is blind leads to a lot of nice messages throughout the film so the fact that you know, their relationship is based on the fact that she will sort of like feel his face and they say that he's she's the only one who can see the true Gwynplaine. She's not affected by how he looks. She can see the man inside and that's why he is so attached to her and loves her so much because she's not phased at all by his appearance and she just sees him for who he really is. Um, and there's many times in which she does feel his face and sort of feels the grin and everything. And she sort of sees that with affection, whereas everyone else kind of looks at him and, and laughs, which I kind of think is weird. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think that's particularly funny. I think it's like scary. But every time you, he goes on stage, everyone's like, he doesn't do anything, by the way. It's just he comes on stage and it's literally like, and everyone's like, ah, like pissing themselves with laughter. laughter. And I'm like, what's so funny about that? I mean, I've seen pictures of it. It looks genuinely horrifying. Yeah. What I've noticed from like the pictures I've seen is that it puts a lot of emphasis on who uh, who is the actor, did you say? Uh, I didn't say the actor, but the one who plays him is Conrad Viet. Yeah. There's a lot of emphasis on like how he does his eyes. Because like yeah. I've seen two different images. One is like where he's, you know, meant to be happy, and the other one where he's a bit distressed. He does a really good di- way of differentiating through how his eyes look. I was just wondering, like, because you said about struggling with some of the emotions throughout, were there, like, any moments you could definitely tell, like, what was actually trying to be conveyed? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it's more just because you're so used and it's ingrained in you to just sort of read a person's face through their mouth, eyes, etc. There's just a strange experience to kind of, like, not look at like oh i have to like look at his eyes and remember that he's always like that it's more just an immediate reaction you see him smiling you think oh he's happy and then you're like oh wait he's crying and you remember so it's just more like getting used to that which is an interesting experience yeah so this um film i actually put on my own personal list of films to watch after going through the welcome movies podcast and you know after listening to your version of it it sounds it's just nothing i was expecting at all i think um listening to the actual podcast and thinking about 
how silent films are and how old school films are. It sounds relatively quite horror based and quite a scary film in sense. Yeah, that's what I think is good about the expectation element because I had a lot more horror type of expectations and seeing this kind of maybe like elephant man type story and seeing like these horrific things. But really, again, it turns into this more gothic drama. There's so much emphasized on him and D as the relationship. And there's so many times in which you'll see him leave and D is kind of distraught and she's sort of holding on to like his clothes and like smelling things. And they play this like, big like music and like anthem throughout it and obviously silent films are helped a lot by by their score i do want to point out that the people who recently re-released this like on home media etc they did have an an orchestra like redo the uh soundtrack for it a, a version so you could watch either one um i watched the original one uh with the original sound and even though you've got like the hiss and everything and it doesn't sound quite as good because it's obviously so old there's something you lose when i went and looked through parts of it with the reorchestrated version because it just makes it more detached from the actual film and it just doesn't sync quite together as much and it's just weird to have this high quality sound paired with something that's so old and, and vintage so i would say if you've got the choice to watch the original audio that the, the new one is nice to listen to and and even they actually do it in some scenes say where there's a, a scene in a court and they've got like a band playing like flutes and different things like that they will more like mimic what's happening in the scene with the flutes and everything which again is not usually a, an element of, of silent cinema it's usually you're playing the score for the actual scene not so much like actually making it diegetic music kind of thing so that makes things a bit confusing as well but yeah, you, like I said, you get some great scenes with uh, Gwynplaine and the fact that he, you know, there's one point where the Duchess is sort of like entranced by him when she goes to see him on stage and she sort of writes to him and says, I was the only person in the room not laughing. And he is sort of attracted to her at, at, at first to think like, oh, well, is there somebody out there who can see me but also not laugh at me? Uh, but then once she finds out the news about um, him being the ace, she sort of changes her tune a bit and she sort of starts laughing maybe at the concept. Um, so then he's distraught by that and he, he goes back to D. Um, so yeah, I think, like I said, it, it's really impressive for what it does for the time. It's not, like I said, it's now in 50 minutes. It is, it does, I don't want to say like drags on. It does do a pretty good job with the time. But again, there are certain elements of like, well, did you need to like draw the story out in this much sense? You know, could you have simplified it more to be about the man who laughs and about seeing more of this horrific imagery rather than going to like the queen and the duchess and that kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't care about the duchess. Why Why are we seeing all of this kind of stuff? The last sort of thing that I want to mention is that um, even though this is already in the movie vault, I do want to give a shout out to the star performer of this film as well as uh, Mary uh, Philbin, who plays D, and Conrad Viet, who plays Gwynplaine, and also Cesar uh, Gravina who plays Ursus but also I want to give a shout out to Zimbo uh, who plays Homo the wolf <laughs> so there's a dog in this film in real life is called Zimbo and for some reason this dog's called Homo am I okay I didn't expect to be watching a film and going go Homo <laughs> and uh, apparently at the end of the film I was looking at the credits and it's Homo the wolf so he's I, I was there throughout the day going like oh what a good dog I was like oh he's a wolf apparently and yeah, this dog is like, what what a good dog he is. Like, I just want to give him like a, a good doggo award because 
like it happens a lot within silent films i don't know if it's this period of time people were just more attached to dogs or not um but essentially when uh ursus and d are looking to leave the town and get onto the boat when they think the Gwynplaine has died uh homo being the good dog he is sort of sniffs him out so they're like their wagon is broken down and they're sort of like uh having a bit of problems in the middle of the town and at the same time Gwynplaine is going past in like a a posh chariot to go get married and everything and homo sort of smells him on the the posh chariot once he leaves so he like grabs uh d and this is just such a cute scene in which she's literally because you know again she's blind she's been like dragged along by this dog who's just like holding her by her dress and just like taking her to this place so they've just literally got like a tracking shot that goes alongside with just this dog holding onto her dress and then they get to like the parliament building and like all the guards like trying to like make it so that she doesn't enter and the dog is like snarling at them and everything and uh, at one point then this lord so grabs her and, and takes her in to so help confuse the situation about when Gwynplaine leaves and uh, they don't let the dog in I was like oh I hope Homo will be okay and then at the end literally Gwynplaine is there trying to like run to this boat and like uh, Ursus and D are just there and D's also like uh, I think she's been like drugged at this point and uh, Ursus is so like caring for her and she's so like asking about where Gwynplaine is and she misses Gwynplaine and uh, you can see him like shouting and he's like trying to like uh, chase the boat down and of course Homo's the one who's like there like on the top of the boat barking like I see you I see you the dog jumps off the boat is just like swimming all cute in the sea and then sees that the jester guy in the army is chasing after Gwynplaine so what does Homo do he gets out of the water snarls at the jester pounces on him bites his throat literally like all you see is just this like wolf on this guy just gnawing at his face he then just like takes him into the ocean kills him the guy's hat floats on the water and then homo swims away like a good little dog gets back on the boat with a Gwynplaine once he's managed to get there on his pedal boat and they all live happy together <laughs> and i was like yay homo this dog survived and he like heroically like killed the villain <laughs> and like protected he sounds like a really good yeah this was like whoever trained this dog back in 1928 they did a good job like he he like acted the hell out of this film there's so many times in which like he looked sad when Gwynplaine left and then when d was on her own she like he like comes up to her and like puts his head on her and stuff i was like oh so uh, maybe even more impressive by the fact apparently it's a wolf yeah <laughs> so uh big shout out to zimbo in this film he, he did good but uh yeah I wonder if anybody gave Homer a bone. Yeah, he does look like he has like a chicken leg or something at some point when he's happy the Gwynplaine is like back at the, when Gwynplaine leaves at one point, he like starts eating the chicken bone underneath the, the wagon. So yeah, he, he he probably got fed well. Um, but yeah, I think this film definitely deserves his, his spot in the movie vault for the inspiration of the Joker, the, the imagery alone. But like I said, it deals with some really like interesting themes for the time and even technically as well like i said you have like tracking like nice tracking shots and some impressive imagery and i think that you know it obviously helped to to lead to a lot of films we'd have later on like our horror films and more of like our dramas and stuff like that so yeah i think it does deserve its place but it was very different from what i expected expectation wise if the film was um to be remade today do you think it would work in that sense if it was you know, if cast and production took place tomorrow, do you think they'd have to change much 
or could they keep it in the same sort of style that it was portrayed back then? Yeah, well, I was thinking that because I thought that was the only thing that you did miss with it being silent is that you kind of, because it's called The Man Who Laughs, it would be nice to hear people laughing or at least you don't so much need it when people are looking at him laughing because obviously you can just tell by the way people are cracking up. But when you hear The Man Who Laughs, you think like, oh, it's inspiration for the Joker. It must be like the Joker, somebody who can't stop laughing or is like psychotically laughing. So the fact that he isn't actually laughing and he's just constantly got like a sinister grin. I think it'd be interesting if you could kind of hear that sometimes, if you could hear his kind of like crying or like horrific sounds he's making behind this like horrific grin. I think that would sort of make things a bit more like traumatizing, a bit more scary. Or if you did have the element of somebody who literally keeps laughing because nobody's actually really done that with the Joker. Maybe Jack Nicholson, but again, a lot of that was like prosthetics and that kind of stuff. So I'd be interested to see if somebody actually takes this aspect of, of this character and runs with it for Joker. Because I would like to see somebody who does that because that's what Joker does to people. He, you know, his the spray and stuff he has puts that permanent grin on their face. I'd like to see somebody who does the Joker who is just literally permanently grinning like everything he says and does. I think that'd be quite interesting. But you can definitely see a lot of like inspiration that this film brings up the idea of like society being against you and laughing at inappropriate things. So there's times where people, you know, when uh, Ursa still meets uh, first meets him, for example, he takes the baby and he's like, oh, the baby's blind. And he's like, stop laughing. Why are you laughing? And then he realizes that he's scarred. So there's many times in the film onwards from that where people don't realize what's wrong with him. And they're like, why is he laughing? Why is he smiling at this? And, and that kind of stuff as well. So um so i think if you know if they did remake it and they wanted to go with the imagery the silence of it can can help but you need more of that imagery and more scary like horrific moments of that but if you are to go with sort of like the the audio aspect and remake it but you would lose a lot with like losing the black and white and and the the time it was made and that kind of stuff so yeah i, I would only be interested in so maybe if they did it in a way of like focusing just on the character and hearing like the laugh and the, and the sounds of that character without like adding any of the other melodramatic stuff so yeah all of those deserve their places in the movie vault uh, so we won't be going to the movie vault this week obviously because we are talking about films that are already in there so back in the vault they go and uh safe they shall stay and uh yeah, of course, uh, put some awards in there as well. So uh, the Good Doggo Award for uh, Zimbo. Any awards you guys want to give to uh, aspects of your films? I think best pie maker just has to go to Miss Lovett. Um, <laughs> more deserving woman to win the coveted award. Best uh, singing performance from Alan Rickman as uh, in Pretty Women. <laughs> yeah, 100% best singing performance. And um, yeah, that's me all out of rewards but um anthony does not deserve anything he's not getting craig anything from uh groundhog day yep i'm going to give my best version of february 2nd to version 163 (laughs) that was it that was a good version well done to you go find that version reason to go watch that film it's like ah this is the version he's on about nice little tease there we're in the endgame now okay endgame time This is called Welcome to the Movie Vault, the director's cut. Obviously, we haven't had any new films go into the film vault uh, this week. So I thought what would be fun is to see the sort of films that uh, 
that renowned directors of the craft would want to see in the movie vault themselves. So what I've done is I've taken 10 directors, so I will give you five each, um, and I've given you a selection of free films. One of them is a film that that director has noted is one of their favourites, hence would be something they would put in the movie vault. You get a point if you can guess which is the correct film. So you're playing for a total of five points for this round. Everything clear? It's all clear, yeah. Stephen, as the guest, you can go first or second, which will also determine which list you get. I'll go first. Okay. So Stephen, your first director is Martin Scorsese. Which of these three films has Martin Scorsese said he would is genuinely one of his top 10 favourite movies, or top 10 movies that everyone should go and see? Your choices are Black Klansman, North by Northwest, or Avengers Endgame? What was the first one again, sorry? Uh, Black Klansman. I'm going to go for Avengers Endgame. Okay. So to be clear, you're going for, you're saying that Martin Scorsese, the guy who has famously said that Marvel is destroying cinema, would happily have everybody watch <laughs> Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Niall, if you're at home, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're listening. That was the dummy one to see as the trick. David, do you happen to know which one it would be? North by Northwest? It's Black Klansman. Oh, wow. I'm going to say that was my original answer. That's why I asked. Them, but it wasn't. Oh, well, of course you were going to say that once I ruled out the other one. <laughs> yeah, you just David, your first director is Steven Spielberg. Yay. Which of these three films has he said is one of his top six favorite movies? Is it? The Grand Budapest Hotel, Tootsie, or The Godfather Part 2? Uh, that's difficult. I'm... Depends, yeah, dep depends if he's talking about... Well, it's, like it's, it's his personal favourite, isn't it? So again, it's not so whether he's talking about it in a certain context. I'm going to go with The Godfather Part 2. Uh, it was Tootsie. Oh, okay. I was leaning towards Grandpa Budapest Hotel, so at least I know it was neither of my main guesses. He did, however, have the original Godfather in his list. Yeah, that was the thing that threw me. I was like, would it be part two? But... What is Tootsie out of curiosity? What, what is that all about? It's an incredibly popular film that I've never heard of. <laughs> um, a couple of the directors on this list have had this film in like their top tens. Need to put this on the list. <laughs> so, Stephen, your next director is Antoine Fuqua. And these are the three films. The Exorcist, Fences, Alaska. Well, Greg, I'm not going to think about it too much. I'm going to hit you with Alaska. Yeah, maybe, maybe you should have been a bit more on the fence about that one. Mm. It was Fences, which is a big surprise to me because I was not a big fan of that film. Yeah, what was the other, what was it? Fences, Alaska, and... The Exorcist. Mm, okay. So, David, your next director is Wes Anderson. Oh. 
and these are your choices. Was it from the life of marionettes, Ghost in the Shell, or Gone Girl? Oh, he's such a weird director again, so I don't know if he's going to like go for something that is not like his kind of film he makes, which he personally appreciates. What was the first one? From the life of marionettes. I'm going to go for Ghost in the Shell. So the unfortunate thing there is uh, I chose that because his favorite uh, his favorite anime series is Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, see, I was like, he seems like an anime sort of lover. So. It's from the life of marionettes. Right. So you should have gone with the instinct of this seems like the sort of film mm. he would have made. Exactly. Stephen, your next director is Paul Feige. These are the three uh, films you have. Quantum of Solace, Superbad, This is the End. A mixture, isn't it? Um, oh, well. If one of these, like, I can understand Quantum of Solace being in there, but if the other two are in there, then you need some questioning. But I feel like it would be, it's not going to be Quantum of Solace, I don't feel like that. So I think it's between the two. So I'm going to go for This is the End. Oh, damn it. Yeah, if you had put Quantum Solace, I would have just, like, I was like, look, some of your films are not great, but what the hell are you doing, man? <laughs> I understand this is the end, but uh, there is an article where he basically eloquently explains why he thinks it's an incredibly fun comedy, just poking fun at uh, a load of actors' tropes. Yeah, I think that's a very kind of, like, Hollywood person film to enjoy because they're like, oh, it's making fun of us, you know. Yeah. Uncle Zero in the film really makes me laugh. <laughs> so, David... Your next director is John Favreau. Oh. What did he want? Did he want The Magnificent Seven, Blinded by the Light, or Kung Fu Panda? Uh, I don't know what I don't know what's been thrown in here as kind of like things to throw me from his past experience. I. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with uh, yeah I'll just have to go with Magnificent Seven this is either a trap or it's genuinely there because of inspiration oh. it's Kung Fu Panda oh. on his original list he had Seven Samurai right that's yeah the other one that was in my head <laughs> that was the trap yeah of course so at the end of three directors, Stephen is the lead with one to zero. Is Kung Fu, was it just like, it's a nice family film or was it like, was it? I, the article I saw, there wasn't like a, an explanation. Okay. It just had them there. And I was like, okay, fair enough. So Stephen, your next director is Brett Ratner. Is one of his favorite films. The Hangover. Ali G in the house. Or Kill Bill Volume 2? I've actually watched all three of these films, which is a rarity. <laughs> um, now, obviously, Kill Bill, classic, classic. But the way it's been going, you've been throwing people off. But I feel as though that has to stop now. So I'm going to say Kill Bill Volume 2. <laughs> so the embarrassing thing is these are all permutations of films he actually wanted. I put Kill Bill Volume 2 because he wants Kill Bill in his top 10. I put Ali G in the house because his sick favourite film is Borat. 
And it was the hangover he had on the list at number seven. Oh, at number two, actually, I think. Oh, wow. So, yeah. David, your next director is James Gray. Does he like Singing in the Rain, Goodfellas, or Romeo and Juliet? I don't think I know who James Gray is. This would just be a stab in the dark, so I can't say, oh, like, yeah, I know who this guy is. Um, I'm going to say Romeo and Juliet. Ah. <laughs> Singing in the Rain. Damn it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've gone for the inspirational one too much. I'll go for like the obscure one. Just to put the pressure on, Stephen, if you get this next one right, you have instantly won. <laughs> Your last director is Lena Dunham. Did she want Zero Dark Thirty, Fish Tank, or Reservoir Dogs? My friend Craig, I believe she wanted Fish Tank. Oh, my God. Oh. What? Yep. <laughs> so, David, just to see if you can end this game with a point. Oh, this is a reoccurring theme, isn't it? <laughs> yep. So, David, your final director is Sofia Coppola. Okay. Did she want Calamity Jane? Let the right one in? Or the water boy? I'm going to say let the right one in. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> if she had put Waterboy in, I would have questioned everything. Can I give a small victory speech? So at the end of the director's cut, the scores are as follows. David ends with one, but our winner with two is Stephen. Well yes. done, Steve. Thank you, Dave. I'd just like to thank my mum for raising a winner, and I'd like to thank you <laughs> for being a loser. <laughs> Last time I was just like, yeah, sports movies can't like, you know, like this is like directors, like, oh, God's sake. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well done, Steve. Thank you, Craig, for another entertaining endgame. Uh, we've had fun today uh, exploring movies from the vault. Uh, if you have uh, listened to our episodes before where we talk about what films we want to put into the movie vault, let us know what films you have never seen before or you think deserve to be in there or don't deserve to be in there uh ones you would want to add and uh yeah let us know uh, possibly we'll put like a list out quite soon which can go through uh, everything that's currently in there and uh yeah also let us know uh, the films that you've seen before that you've had expectations didn't meet your expectations were better were worse than you thought and what are some of your favorite easter eggs let us know uh we're gonna get out of here now but Steve, where can the people catch you? So the people can catch me over at Empora, a sports and adventure website that is dedicated to bringing you every type of adventure. So currently we've got our new uh, England issue coming out, which should be out uh, mid-April. And it's going to have articles about everything great about England. And yeah, you can also catch me over on Fresh Take, where me and yourself have got a great new series coming called Never Have I Seen or Never Seen even. And it's going to be about the films that I haven't seen before. So, you know, it's going to be a great bit of fun. I'm going to be getting to watch some classics and you can find that over on the Fresh Take Hub. Yeah, sounds very fun, man. Check it out. 
Um, you can catch us at freshtakehub.com. As Steve said, lots to check out on there at the moment. You can check out mine, Kelly's, Jake's and Niall's thoughts on the Justice League cut that has just come out. The Snyder cuts, talking about director's cuts as we did in that endgame. Uh, we sort of give our opinions uh, as we reacted to the different elements such as the characters, the story, etc. Uh, so go check that one out. And uh, yeah, you can check out our video content which will soon be added never seen onto that content but we've also got my video essay which is all about spider-man uh, the first avenger talking about how he is very much the superman of marvel so yeah get us onto all your social medias at well good movies on instagram twitter and facebook and you can also catch fresh take hub on the same socials at fresh take hub craig anything lastly for yourself Run now, film god. You are temporarily free. Run, <laughs> get out while it's while you still have a chance. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to visit him soon. It's been a pandemic. I hope he's okay. <laughs> so uh yeah, thank you for joining us once again, guys. And uh yeah, tell us at home what films you're gonna be checking out from the vault, what ones you would add in there, and uh, we hope to be adding some more very soon. Catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Stephen, your next director is Paul Fig. Or Fig. Oh, it's Fig. Okay, fine. Paul. Uh, Stephen, your next director is Paul. Uh, <laughs> Damn. Flaky. I thought I said Flaky.